0: Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We hope everyone is staying safe out there. We hope everybody had a good week. We are ready with some great articles for you and we hope you are ready for them. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
1: So let's get started with our first link. First link. Link. I had to kick it off with this one just because I could not imagine a more uh, fruitful and ridiculous type of article. But this one comes from our very own Alan Bellows of Damn Interesting. And it's called Professional Farters. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we need a little bit of levity to uh, break the wind of the doldrums of doom, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the question
0: is, is a professional farter an essential worker? I mean, are they furloughed right now or are they keeping it up? <laughs> I feel like you need to in this time. You need to have your professional farter doing the good work.
1: <laughs> Agree. But unfortunately, this particular article on professional farters looks at a kind of historical lens. So, you know, whether there are, you know, modern professional It's sort of touched on at the end of the article, but this one largely focuses on a man named Joseph Pujol. He was a French man born in Marseille in 1857. Basically what happened, he discovered this talent completely by accident. He was swimming in the sea. He took a deep breath before submerging, but when he inhaled, he felt icy cold water entering through his rear end. (laughs) Naturally alarmed because that doesn't seem to be yeah. sort of something that normally happens. He returned to shore and was astonished to see a great deal of seawater pouring from his backside. So he began experimenting and soon found that with a little bit of abdominal control, he could deliberately suck water in through his anus and project it back out with impressive force, creating a spout of several meters. <laughs> like the worst <laughs> whale ever. <laughs> reverse whale. Um, He kept experimenting and also found that it wasn't just water that this worked with, but it could also be large amounts of air. And he had to kind of contort himself in a certain way to make sure this would happen. And then he was starting to experiment using different pressures to produce different notes. So oh, he geez. could a- he could actually reproduce simple tunes.
0: So it was a literal butt trumpet, like he was playing music.
1: That's right. His butt was the trumpet. Hieronymus wow. Bosch would be proud, right? <laughs> so, you know, he was obviously beloved among his schoolmates when he was younger. Oh, but- sure. That's a quick track to popularity <laughs> among the adolescent boys. Exactly. But. It wasn't just adolescent boys who found this entertaining. Apparently, this talent made him the most well-known and most highly paid entertainer in all of France during his lifetime. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) This was in high demand. So he was a hit at school, and then he would go in the army, and he also amused his fellow soldiers. And so they gave him this nickname, La Petomaine, which roughly translates to fartiste, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know this was just kind of like a parlor trick something to amuse friends for a while because when he left the service he opened a bakery apparently this bakery was known for having some of the finest bran muffins in the south of france oh, make of as right. what you will <laughs> but he started going into show business when he started feeling restless he you know was still an entertainer at heart and at first he really didn't want to be a fartiste he was trying to do the like yokel with the trombone routine because he played the trombone But as the article notes, the Fartiste within him could not be contained. (laughs) So in 1887, at the ripe age of 30, he first took the stage in Marseille as Le Main. So the first attempt was kind of met with some skepticism because this was still kind of a novelty, but he quickly won the audience over and was a huge success. So he developed this act locally for about five years. Then he went to Paris to go for the Moulin Rouge, which is like, you know, the epicenter (laughs) of performing arts. If you can make it in Paris, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> exactly. So the first night he performed at the Moulin Rouge, he was dressed to the nines in a red coat, black satin breeches. He had a pair of white gloves that he held in his hands. And he looked very sophisticated as he explained to the audience that the emissions he was about to produce were completely odorless because he irrigated his colon daily. Oh, that's nice of him. <laughs> I know. I'm, it was not only thoughtful, but I'm sure that those, you know, famous brand muffins may have had something to help with that. That's why right, um, You need your <laughs> instrument open and ready to go exactly exactly right it's his instrument you have to keep your instrument clean (laughs) (laughs) but you know the audience was completely unprepared for what he was about to do so His act was like this. He started off with a series of fart impressions, like a new bride's timid toot and then her noisy flapping emissions a week later, which is, you know, got some dubious misogyny in there, but whatever. (laughs) Then he would do the solid booming fart of a Miller and a majestic 10 second long helping of flatulence to wrap up his introduction. That's just the introduction. He would do impressions of famous people. He would play songs. He would blow out candles, all with his famed instrument. Um, he would even do imitations of cannon fire and reenacted a thunderstorm. Wow. So he had he had a good variety going. It wasn't just
0: look at me and what I can do. He had worked on this.
1: Well, well he had experimented with so many different things in terms of like, you know, pressure, intake, being able to produce <laughs> different sounds. I mean, like his <laughs> instrument was very well understood to him at this point. So he had mm. a lot of range if you will. And at first, the audience was just, like, gobsmacked. They didn't know what to make of this. But the minute somebody started laughing uncontrollably, it just caught, like, wildfire. Like, the group mentality just took over. Apparently, a number of women passed out because they were unable to breathe in their tightly bound corsets and had to be escorted from the theater. Oh, no. (laughs) But for the second act, the second part of his act, he actually would step off stage. He inserted a rubber tube into his orifice, which dangled out of a hole in the back of his fine trouser. And he used the tube to smoke two cigarettes at once. That can't be healthy. (laughs) And then as the grand finale, he attached an ocarina to the end of the hose and played popular tunes while inviting the audience to sing along. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, it's participatory. I mean, you know, you want to get them involved. You know, live performance is all about that crowd feedback. Yeah. He did this for years and eventually became the highest paid entertainer in all of France and, as the article notes, perhaps the world.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, the man had a talent. You got to reward that.
1: He had a talent that he worked very, very hard at to make as entertaining and diverse as possible. But in 1895, he eventually parted ways with the Moulin Rouge because the owner of the theater sued him for breach of contract after he fart serenaded people in public.
0: Oh, like he was performing outside of the theater and he said, no,
1: no, no, you belong to me. That's exactly right. Oh. Um, so he was quickly replaced by a female and her name was La Femme Petomaine. <laughs> oh, so there were other people who could do this? Ostensibly. It really doesn't go into kind of what La Femme Petomen's particular act was like, but the article does refer to her as a female bellows-powered fraud. So clearly it didn't capture the, you know, original piquant nature of the master (laughs) himself. After that, he opened a theater of his own. He had many more years of success, but then really gave up the ghost. Once two of his sons became disabled in World War I. he went back to baking. And as the article notes, he let his rectum content itself with more conventional pursuits. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> he died at eighty-eight years old. And when a medical school in Paris requested the privilege of examining the late Le Petitman's famous anus, <laughs> the family declined, stating, "Quote: There are some things in this." life, which simply must be treated with reverence. Oh, yes. I'm sure that's what Le Petomain would have wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could have really uncovered a lot of really interesting medical information about sure. uh, that part of the body. He explored it probably to depths that I'm not sure anybody has since then. But he was not the first one to do this, and certainly not the last. Way back in history, I think, halfway through the first century AD, St. Augustine mentioned some performers who possessed, quote, such command of their bowels that they can break wind continuously at will so as to bruise the effect of singing. <laughs> they even have examples dating back to medieval Ireland. They had professional farters called Bregatori. And the Japanese Kamakura period had professional performers of fart dances called Oribe, which has made that much more hilarious because I know for a fact there is a high high-priced, quality, luxurious hair care line called Oribe. I'm not sure if they did their research on this, (laughs) but they do, like, 24-karat gold-infused shampoos and this, like, dry shampoo texturizer that is, like, well-reviewed, but. There is a contemporary flatulist, perhaps the only representative of its trade today, and his name is Mr. Methane. He oh, definitely no. doesn't have the sophistication of class of Le Petumain. He wears a cape and a mask, and he kind of looks like some kind of superhero or supervillain, depending on your perspective here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but his website is just like all kinds of green. He's really heavily branded. And the article is careful to note at this closing line that the word fart occurs 13 times in this article.
0: Oh, good to know. I mean, yeah. you want to
1: keep those stats ready. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's good to know that like if podcasting doesn't work out, maybe we could all work on our abdominal muscles and have a new career in front of us. That's
1: right. But if we have anything to learn from La Le it takes a lot of practice. And I hope you are in a supportive and safe environment. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next,
0: Next link. link. All right. Well, regular listeners of the podcast may remember back in January, we talked about some giant isopods that were feasting on dead alligators at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Is that ringing any bells? So (laughs) these are the creatures that look like, oh, you call them roly polies or doodlebugs. There's a lot of different names, but it's the little Mm. crustaceans. But the ones that live underwater are like the size of a football. And they're actually predators. Like, they eat dead stuff, but they can also attack living creatures. There's actually Ooh. a video that's unrelated to the article, but it's in the article about uh, it's a video of a giant isopod attacking a living shark, like, on Yikes! the face. So these things just became a lot scarier. But anyway, uh, <laughs> they are back in the news. Everyone to be very excited. woo uh, The headline of this article from Sora News 24 is Giant Undersea Bug in Toba Aquarium Poops For the first time in two years. Whoa. (laughs) Wait, what? So, yeah. So the uh, the Toba Aquarium in Japan has five of these giant isopods. And generally speaking, they haven't been pooping. You know, they're in a tank. They check the tank. There hasn't been any fecal matter for two years. What, and the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it, you would think maybe like they're just missing it or something's happening. But it turns out, actually, they sort of know that these isopods have irregular feeding and digestion patterns and their digestion is and can be very slow. And they've actually mm. had some on record that have lived as long as six years without eating at all. So they seem to kind of be this sort of feast or famine cycle uh, just naturally. That's sort of what they do. Yeah, but the
1: extended time period is extreme.
0: Right, exactly. And the ones in the aquarium had been pooping a little more regularly before they went on this sort of two-year hiatus, I guess. But more importantly, the feces that this one of the isopods pooped out, and it happened overnight, so they don't know which one of them pooped. The feces (laughs) contained scales from a fish that is not served by the aquarium. Meaning that the poop that came out of this isopod is from a meal eaten at least seven years ago before they came to the aquarium. What? I mean, it's, it's an insanely long digestive system, but clearly, I mean, they're healthy and they're living. It's not, it's some sort of normal function, Apparently, it's enough to keep them alive. But uh, so anyway, this was very exciting for the, uh, you know, people working, the zoo, the zoologists at the aquarium. Uh, they posted about it. Uh, it became a social media sensation I'm in Japan. I'm sure. The, mm-hmm. uh, the article links to a bunch of sort of celebratory animations and fan videos that people made. There's people dressed up in these isopod costumes. Uh, <laughs> some of the comments left on the aquarium's page were, this is the most relaxing news I've heard in months. And... I <laughs> I feel like this is a sign that things are finally getting back to normal. (laughs) I think possibly people are just sort of desperate for any sort of good news and they're willing to take a giant doodlebug pooping. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Some have actually, you know, questioned whether the isopod finally pooped because like the garden eels we talked about a few weeks ago, the visitors are finally gone from the aquarium. They're thinking maybe they were sort of holding off
1: because they weren't feeling comfortable. They were getting a little shy. But uh, yeah, but nearly a decade of stress related incontinence. Like I I I feel for these little buggers. Yeah, no, Hugs. I mean, it, it can't have been comfortable. <laughs> I think I'm good for him. I don't know. I
0: mean, maybe now that one has done it, maybe the other four will say, okay, it's safe. It's safe. We'll all go ahead and, and poop in the next couple of days. I don't know. But uh, I assure you, this was entirely coincidental. I did not know you were going to be talking about farts and then I was going to be talking about poop. We had a real theme going <laughs> on today. So <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the butt stuff week. That's right. That's right. Now <laughs> would probably be the time to mention that the uh, pandas that everybody can't get to have sex in the Chinese zoo, they're having sex now with all the visitors gone. So, you know, animals Aww. are just finally going back to their natural state once we stop looking at them all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Surveillance does that to folks, right? Nobody really cares to feel relaxed or even just adhere to natural biological functions when under a state of constant surveillance. That stuff's tough. That's right. Well, you know, I mean, maybe
0: they just feel bad for the zoologists. They're like, every time we poop, they take it and they mess with it. And it feels like, you know, maybe maybe they were doing the <laughs> zoologists a favor. You know, they were like, oh, we'll, we'll try to reduce the amount of poop you have to deal with. I don't know. So thoughtful. Yeah. But uh anyway, the uh, giant isopods are cool little creatures, if a little bit terrifying, and hopefully they'll uh, have a little more relaxation in their future now.
1: You know, good for them. That's astonishing though. And and I think I'm going to have to I know exactly the kind of article that I'm going to be following up with with the selection that I've got here because you're right, a theme has definitely emerged. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, we're going to go a little bit up in the uh, digestive tract here. And we're Uh going to go to science (laughs) alert with an article by Carly Casella called armor-plated dinosaur's last meal found beautifully preserved 110 million years later. Wow. So basically, the last meal of a huge armor-plated dinosaur has been found still in its fossilized belly in what is now northern Alberta. It was a 1,300-kilogram nodosaur. It was unearthed in 2011, and it is said to contain the best preserved dinosaur stomach found to date.
0: So it basically
1: took about five years of careful work to expose the dinosaur because it was in a marine rock, first of all. And there was a soccer ball-sized mass in the tummy that has basically now given us a glimpse into what large plant-eating dinosaurs really actually ate. Like we, you know, have an idea that some dinosaurs were herbivores and that kind of thing, but what exactly they ate has been more speculation or hypothesis than backed up with actual data, which we finally have now. Right. Right. So they're basically thinking that before this particular dinosaur died and was probably washed out to sea, maybe by a flood, scientists say it was, quote, nomming on stems, twigs, and a particular species of fern uh, Hmm. while largely ignoring conifer and cycad leaves, which were abundant at the time. So it's actually able to demonstrate that it had, you know, some degree of pickiness or at least suitability in terms of what it was preferring. Mm -hmm. So of all of the chewed leaf material found in its guts, 88% were deemed fern leaves and just 7% were stems and twigs. Um, So they were basically able to find 50 types of plant microfossils, including six types of moss or liverwort a variety of ferns, a few types of conifers, and two flowering plants. They also found gizzard stones, which are rocks that some animals ingest to help with digestion, crocodiles and seals, and I think chickens do that as well. Yeah, I think Um, they do. They do, right? But the most intriguing discovery that they found was the presence of burnt vegetation. The article notes that these may have been eaten by accident or potentially on purpose because they were obviously not able to tell. This is kind of new information. But they found that there was a lot of charcoal from burnt plant fragments indicating the animal was browsing in a recently burnt area and was taking advantage of a recent fire and the flush of ferns that usually emerge from a burned landscape. And so this adaptation to fire ecology is new information. When we look at modern ecosystems, big herbivores are usually thought to be crucial to landscapes, and they're often termed keystone species because they help support the ecosystem at large. They basically shape the vegetation on the landscape, maybe by maintaining more open areas by grazing.
0: Well, and it's super fascinating to hear about him eating charcoal, because who knows if it was deliberate or It was just like I got on the stuff I really wanted to eat. But there's exactly there's evidence for like charcoal as like medicinal properties. It's very absorbent and it absorbs toxins. So like if you're eating charcoal on a regular basis, that could actually affect your digestion and what you're absorbing from
1: your food in both a good and a bad way. Right. Yeah. A lot of people like charcoal ice creams were a fad a few years ago just in oh, terms really? of yeah, producing like jet black ice cream. And mm-hmm. then peripheral side effect is that it has some detoxifying effects, which is curious to think about when you're eating sugar dairy, basically, Right, which can right. a lot of people. But yeah, very cool. Moving up the digestive track. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next
0: link. link. Well, I swear to you, this is not planned, but uh, we're going to stick in the digestive tract for a little bit. uh, Sort of. I'm I'm maybe stretching the segue a little bit. Uh, But I have to say, whoever came up with the title of this next article is really patting themselves on the back. And I think they deserve it. This comes from Tim Lewis at The Guardian. The headline is, Gardens of the Galaxy, Can You Grow Vegetables on Mars? So it's Mm -hmm. an exploration of two different scientists working on kind of different angles of this problem. The first one is Dr. Wieger Wamalink. He's a senior (laughs) ecologist at the Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And he has been studying the subject since 2013, but he actually has said that most institutions, including NASA, have brushed him off and refused to give him grants, saying, this is a dumb problem. We're just going to bring the food. Like, of course you can't grow things on Mars. Quit it. But he said the release of the movie The Martian in 2015, where he grew a whole bunch of potatoes, has significantly spurred interest. And now he's like, it's super easy for me to get grants and study this. And he feels like. (laughs) Good for him. Yeah. He's like, well, if this is what it takes, then great. Um, (laughs) So he grows his plants on Earth in what's called a regolith simulant which is a NASA-approved substance that mimics the soil found on different planets. So, for example, moon soil comes from a desert in Arizona, and Mars soil comes from the side of a volcano in Hawaii, which is then sort of cleaned and rolled to make it a little drier and dustier. Hmm. And normally these are used for things like Can the little wheeled vehicles drive over this or what's going to, you know, what are the physical properties of this dirt? Apparently, no one has ever tried to actually grow anything in these simulants, which is very strange. But this guy has, fortunately. His very first (sighs) plant was a success. He tried to grow garden cress, which is also known as upland cress, which I had to look up. Apparently, it's related to watercress, but it's not. It's a lettuce, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. and crucially, when it grew, it did not uptake the many toxic metals that are in the fake Mars dirt, right? It's not pulling up the lead and the mercury and stuff. So you could, in theory, eat it without getting poisoned. And he said in subsequent generations, adding sort of the leaves and the roots from his harvest as a fertilizer, along with Mm -hmm. some earthworms, subsequent harvests have been much bigger and healthier. And he's like, this is a very viable thing that we could be doing. So far, he has now successfully grown tomatoes, peas, radishes, carrots, and oh. potatoes—everybody's
1: favorite. Wait, wait a minute. So the soil properties and experimenting with that, even though they're kind of artificially reconstructed here on Earth, that seems mm-hmm. to be viable. But what about the atmosphere? I mean, there's no right.
0: <laughs> there is. There is an issue. Don't need to
1: have like? <laughs> right.
0: Yes. I mean, presumably. If we're going up there, you know, we've figured out the atmosphere problem to a certain degree. We've got our, you know, our domes or whatever, because obviously this would need astronaut gardeners to grow them. So this Mm -hmm. is sort of long term thinking on his part of like, okay, if we're going to set up a moon base or a Mars base, we will Mm -hmm. need long term food. You can bring up two to three weeks of food, but even the trip Mm -hmm. to Mars alone is six months. So you have to
1: sort of figure out sustainable food production long term. But it's definitely predicated by having a human appropriate type of atmosphere that also the plants are clearly dependent on.
0: Well, and so that's kind of what the second scientist they feature is Dr. Gioia Massa, who is working with NASA's vegetable production system, a.k.a. Veggie. And she basically said, yeah, obviously this is going to need atmosphere. This is going to need a lot of tending, at which point Mm -hmm. the use of the dirt is kind of an unnecessary aspect of it. So she their system is not using planet dirt at all it's just experimenting with what they called modified hydroponics using Mm. not true just water-based but a porous clay substrate that has all these holes in it that holds the water nearby around the roots because this is in zero G. And actually these Mm. are currently growing on the ISS. They have three types of lettuce, some Chinese cabbage, red Russian kale, mizuna mustard, and apparently zinnia flowers. And I don't think those are of any use except they're pretty. And they wanted to just see they grow flowers. Oh, Um, I'm sure. yeah. Yeah. And those they have demonstrated the astronauts are actually allowed to eat some before they send them back for further studies they said, yeah, they're just as nutritionally complete as any lettuces grown on Earth. Huh. So, on the one hand, Masa's veggie program takes more work because the astronauts have mm-hmm. to constantly monitor and sort of judge the correct amount of water. And she said they are frequently getting it wrong. Like, this is a learning process for them. It's gardening. Right. But it is guaranteed safe, unlike Mars dirt. She notes, possibly a little snarkily, that Martian soil does contain perchlorates, which the simulant dirt does not. And perchlorates mm-hmm. are highly poisonous. And they're not at all included in Wamalink's study, so who knows, possibly growing stuff in actual Martian dirt would be totally poisonous and not possible. But hmm. both of them agree that multiple strands of investigation are good. There's no ideas that are too outlandish to rule out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wamalink is also working on the idea of possibly getting pollinators into space. He says oh. uh, bees could hibernate for the six-month trip, and, you know, in theory, you've got your dome and they can fly around. Hmm. He's also looking at using concentrated urine as a fertilizer. So uh, just like the Martian. Exactly. And uh, he said in order to get enough material to test, he actually collaborated with some festival organizers in the Netherlands. Ah. He was careful to note that they tested the urine before concentrating and trying to experiment (laughs) with it to make sure that it wasn't full of THC and booze.
1: (laughs) I I love uh, how the conceit of this is all kind of dependent on human tending. Like mm -hmm. if we are actually going to be going to Mars and doing any kind of settlement, the Wouldn't we just have robots to, like, monitor the actual water levels, things like that? Like, why would a human being have to tend to this unless they really wanted to?
0: Yeah, you would think. I mean, if we're at the point where we're building colonies and living uh, uh, groups of people, you'd think we'd also get the robot tech up there in order to uh, let the astronauts do what they're supposed to be doing.
1: They don't need full-time
0: gardeners. (laughs) I mean, uh,
1: unless they want a hobby and they have a little time to tend to nature, automating some of this or at least monitoring it with mm -hmm. a lot of tech seems like it would really streamlined situation
0: you would hope so i mean they're definitely kind of going full steam i think not just because the martian came out but because people are really sort of coming to the conclusion that yeah we are going to send a mission to mars uh, a manned mission to mars soon Mm -hmm. and we're gonna be setting up possibly a lunar base on the moon and people are sort of seeing this as not some distant sci-fi thing but a real thing that we actually need to start studying for and figure out what do we know about living up there so it's very cool. They said right, they, right. the article talked about a couple of other experiments done in the past with sustainable food production in general. They said in 1979, Soviet cosmonauts aboard the Soyuz 32 took fertilized quail eggs, hoping hmm. that they would hatch. Uh, they didn't. In 1990, Aww. they finally succeeded, but they then found that after the chicks had been born, they struggled with feeding in zero G and they had to wear oh. tiny feed bag harnesses, like oh. <laughs> little itty bitty bags on baby quail chicks faces to feed them. Oh! Uh, and there's also some live fish up in the ISS and they're, you know, they're looking at a lot of different, Mm-hmm. Aspects of food, not just plants, but animal as well. So I'm hopeful. I think probably we are, we're definitely going to have to figure out sustainable food production up there at some point because you just mm. cannot keep supplying things every couple of weeks. You know, you're going to have to figure yeah. out how to be sustainable. So, you know, if we're all eating watercress and chicken eggs, I guess that's all right. <laughs> it's not too unhealthy. <laughs>
1: Yeah and and who knows what the next you know future generation of space bees could mutate into that sounds Ooh. absolutely terrifying I'm I'm on board with the space or- bees I like them <laughs> <laughs> you are now (laughs) that's right I hadn't even thought about it
0: but now I am I mean think about the the whole concept of flying I mean they're not beating their wings anymore they're just sort of floating about like they could completely (gasps) change the anatomy of the bee
1: oh oh this is this is segueing too perfectly into my next article (laughs) I can't can't believe that yeah the serendipity is just gorgeous let's let's do it well it's a lucky day next link
0: Next, Next link.
1: link. Okay, this article comes from Live Science by Diane Lincoln, and it's called Here's How Plants Became Meat Eaters. This is basically oh. kind of a quick little look at carnivorous plants <gasps> like the Venus flytrap and stuff. Exactly right. Okay, so basically, right. it's kind of looking at the history of this because I've always I've always been fascinated. I think I had like a little baby Venus flytrap once upon a time just kind of as mm-hmm. a novelty. But I mean, they take quite a bit of care if you don't have a lot of natural insect or food sources for them. Like you actually have to like tweezer feed them little flies. And that was just a little too macabre for me. But, <laughs> you know, it's crazy, right? Like the mm-hmm. idea that plants can evolve into being meat eaters. And so right. at least, you know, what this article gives me a little bit of... <laughs> (laughs) It suits my anxiety about future space bees a little bit because (laughs) the evolution of this obviously took tens of millions of years to Mm -hmm. really turn a regular non-carnivorous plant into a carnivore. But basically, it comes down to their genes. So these plants, over about 70 million years, repurposed their genes that were originally meant for roots and leaves and began to adapt them instead to catch prey. Um, It basically enabled them to thrive in nutrient-poor soil. So normally, these roots are extracting all of the nutrients from the soil. If they're in crappy soil, there are not a lot of nutrients. And so they're able to capture and consume nutrient-rich animal prey. And they got a team of botanists and biologists at the University of Würzburg, Germany, And they compared the genomes and anatomy of three modern meat-eating plants. There are hundreds of carnivorous plant species. I I had no idea there were that many. But the three that they looked at use motion to capture prey. So the Venus flytrap was definitely one. These are native to the wetlands of the Carolinas. (laughs) And as it noted, it has influenced Pokemon characters, made appearances (laughs) in various Saturday morning cartoons, and even inspired a Broadway play. How many plants can you say have done that, right? Oh, that's true. (laughs) I'm a big fan of Little Shop of Horrors, so that's good news. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) They've also looked at the closely related aquatic waterwheel plant, which is basically in the water of almost every continent. And this one has spindly underwater flaps that tighten around unsuspecting, marine animals. And then the third plant they looked at was the beautiful but deadly sundew plant, which is common in Australia. It lures its victims with sweetness, and then it rolls up a sticky strip around its catch. So what they found was a three-step process towards what they're terming carnivory, Um, So what they're thinking is about 70 million years ago, an early non-carnivorous ancestor of these three modern plant carnivores underwent a whole genome duplication. So it basically created a second copy of its entire DNA. And what this duplication did is it freed up one of the copies of leaf and root genes to diversify so it could start to serve other functions. Some of the leaf genes developed into genes for traps, while carnivorous nutrition and absorption processes were guided by genes that otherwise would have been roots looking for nutrition in the soil. And so the second step occurred once the plants began to receive these new nutrients from the play. They got a little bit smarter and optimized to focus on that function. So at that point, the traditional leaves and roots were basically not necessary. For instance, the seedlings of the aquatic water wheel plants, they acquire an early proto root, but it basically just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't develop as they mature. And this is the only remnant of what was once a root system. And so as a result of losing this gene, the three plants observed are basically the gene poorest plants to be sequenced to date. Whoa. Right? Why? Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it just has to do with basically once they sort of had a mutation that developed a carbon copy, they started to diversify, found a, a new different way, and they just kind of, some went gung ho in that direction. Yeah, and just said, um, forget the rest. We don't need it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, huh. we're getting, we're eating flies now. Come on. That's right. Nutrient soil <laughs> stuff, whatever.
0: It's like the little, uh, uh, vestigial tails that you get on fetuses like have you ever heard that when when human fetuses are developing there's a little point where they get a little tail and then the tail goes away again and that's what their little root is it's like a throwback that's not necessary anymore
1: right right or nipples on males i guess right there you go yeah (laughs) Uh, There were two earlier studies by another group of scientists in 2013 that also kind of underscored the gene-poor findings in other carnivorous plants. See, I mean, it feels like
0: the next logical step, another 10 million years in the future, (laughs) is if, if they don't need these roots... At all to be getting these nutrients, Uh, you know, get rid of them and just become mobile. We're going to have ambulatory human eating plants. (laughs) Assuming we make it that long, which I don't know. I think possibly the plants are going to (laughs) outlive us at
1: home. Well, maybe we bring them into space so they can just sort of like fly like the uh, wingless bees that we've been talking about and (laughs) float around and munch on. What could go wrong? If it does go wrong, we know there's
0: going to be a good musical coming out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Instant hit. That's right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, I'm sorry to say I'm going to break the pattern. This one has absolutely nothing that- to do with the body or digestion <laughs> or any bodily functions whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> this one comes from KQED.org. It's a uh, news network out of the Bay Area called mm-hmm. Why the Golden Gate Bridge is Now a Giant Orange Wheezing Kazoo. Wait, what? <laughs> So there is a phenomenon. So you've, I, I, possibly you've seen a very old video of, I don't believe it was the Golden Gate Bridge, but a bridge that happened to have the exact right width and depth to form a harmonic with the wind that was going across it. And so it starts to create a sine wave that grows and grows and expands. And it basically shakes the whole bridge apart. And they've got video of it. This was sort of, it's it's a very old video. This is like, you know, 1920s or 30s where it started shaking. And I mean, it's flying up and down. It's vibrating with a 10 to 20 foot sine wave. And And, and, and
1: just because of the wind blowing through it? Right,
0: because so it's unlikely, but you can hit certain harmonics if you are exactly the right proportions and the right speed of wind and the wind going directly flat across it. Because if you think about a reed instrument like the oboe, that's Mm. what it is, is the wind going across it creates this harmonic mm. and causes the, the wooden reed to vibrate at exactly the right frequency. Mm-hmm. So they've always sort of known, yes, you have to be careful to make sure your bridges don't create any harmonics with the wind ever since mm-hmm. this one bridge completely broke up. But recently they have done some upgrades and retrofitting to the Golden Gate Bridge. And it has all Mm -hmm. of a sudden started making this incredibly loud noise whenever (gasps) the wind blows. It is specifically Uh these vertical rails that they have put up, kind of like a handrail that goes along the western side of the Mm -hmm. roadway where pedestrians and bikers go. And it is acting just like a giant reed instrument. The wind is going through these vertical slats and it's resonating. And they're making these really loud, sort of eerie alien tones. And they have a bunch of (gasps) links to it. Of people who sort of didn't know what was going on and they're driving on the bridge and all of a sudden this horribly loud, just kind of uh, sounds like a low wind instrument tone. Like it's just sort of a a constant moaning sound that is really kind of scary if you don't know what's happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there was a little bit of an outcry where people started sort of mocking the bridge district who had done the repairs on the bridge saying, <laughs> oh, you didn't do your homework. You failed math. And now look what's happened. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, they said, no, it was not a mistake. They knew it was going to happen. Paulo Kosulich-Schwartz of the bridge district released a public statement saying, yeah, they knew this was going to happen when they installed the slats and they did it anyway. <gasps> He said, quote, the district did extensive studies on the impacts of the project, including wind tunnel testing of a scale model of the bridge under high winds. And he released a video of the scale testing to prove he's not lying. We really did know this was going to happen. We heard the little noise on the small scale. We knew it was going to happen on the big scale. But the aerodynamic retrofit is, quote, necessary to ensure the safety and structural integrity of the bridge for generations to come. And it's a little concerning (laughs) because there's no word in the article on what sort of dangerous scenario they are supposedly protecting this bridge from. Like somehow putting these vertical slats Mm. up prevents a worse disaster caused by the wind, I suppose. And they they didn't really go into that at all. But they basically said, this is absolutely necessary. We're not taking them down. Get used to it. Oh, no. (laughs) And a lot of people are very upset because, I mean, you can hear it not just on the bridge. You can hear it all the way down the bay. Like, people in apartments are just sort of sticking their phone out the window. And there's just this horn noise going at all hours of the day so oh, no yeah it's I, I don't know I mean maybe they're just trying to scare people out of the bay area but it, it's uh <laughs>
1: that's it, one way to dissuade people from moving to a really high cost of living metro I that's guess. right that's right lower the housing prices with constant noise assaults it's noise pollution yeah I mean, on a massive scale yeah that's that's so alarming I mean surely there are going to be some kinds of negative effects from just the noise alone in terms of maybe like scaring off wildlife oh or sure yeah there's godly be-
0: driving people people crazy there's got to be ecological impacts to this birds and probably even the fish because it's going to be resonating down the pylons (laughs) of the bridge oh my god so everything down in the water is hearing it possibly louder and for farther than we can through the air so I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking, but they they decided it was necessary, and uh, it's not going away. So
1: wow, I look forward to uh, keeping tabs on this because holy cannoli, that's insane. Yeah,
0: and and people are complaining. So I'm I'm. I don't know. I think they're probably going to have to come up with another solution because people who live in the Bay Area have a lot of money, and they uh, they can sue, and they can <laughs> they, they've they've got a lot of uh, resources to throw at this problem to get the noise out of their
1: happy little bungalow. <laughs> All right, next link. next Next link link. Uh, this next link comes from the guardian by allison flood it's titled isaac newton proposed curing plague with toad vomit unseen paper show (laughs) i don't know why they're unseen i mean why wouldn't he want (laughs) to just put that out in the world and be super proud of it Basically, these are two pages uh, that had not been published, and it's his notes on Jan Baptiste van Helmont's 1667 book on plague, De pest. <laughs> these are going to be auctioned online by Bonhams this week. Uh, he had been a student at Trinity College in Cambridge when the university closed as a precaution against the bubonic plague. And when he returned to Cambridge, he began to study the work of van Helmont. The notes include the case of a man who touched, quote, pestilent papers, immediately felt a pain like a pricking needle, and developed a pestilent ulcer in the forefinger and died in two days. Whoa. So his observation was places infected with the plague are to be avoided. Yeah. Pretty sensible, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But less sensible were some of Newton's potential cures, which were recorded as being unlikely to be taken up today. He writes that, quote, the best is a toad suspended by the legs in a chimney for three days, which at last vomited up earth with various insects in it onto a dish of yellow wax combining powder toad with the excretions and serum made into lozenges and worn about the affected area uh. drove away the contagion and drew out the poison Mm. Well, no, so he's saying it worked.
0: I mean, he's not just like, I tested it with an upside down frog in my chimney. I actually put it on somebody with the plague.
1: That was a direct quote from wow. his notes. So yeah. it's a little difficult to kind of infer whether this was actually something he had done or was just putting forth as a potential mm-hmm. cure. Um, it does note that it's a potential cure, but well, so shows everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I mean, you got to come up with some wild stuff before actually testing it. And mm-hmm. it's just, the article notes, it's unlikely these are going to be tested now. But, you know, who knows? We'll, we'll go for anything here yeah. for some plague that we got going on right now. Right. Mm-hmm. So the papers had never been previously included in any of his collected works, which is what makes them kind of rare and getting attention on the auction block right now. When Isaac died in, I'm sorry, Sir Isaac Newton, when <laughs> he died in 1727. You're not on his first, huge... n- first name basis? With him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like I've gotten to know him a lot better after right. his uh, proposal <laughs> on toad vomit. But yeah. It, basically, once he died, he had a huge archive of work that was left to his niece. This archive remained in the family for over a century until 1872, when his descendant, Isaac Newton Wallop, mm. donated his writings to Trinity College. Cambridge was grateful, but kept only the mathematical and scientific papers and returned Newton's, quote, more controversial writings on alchemy, theology, and philosophy. That's bizarre. And,
0: like, why wouldn't you want right? this from a
1: historical perspective, even if, yeah, okay, right? yeah, we know alchemy's not real, but Newton wrote this. Like, that feels like something they would want to hold on to. Right, and, and especially theology and philosophy, which, you know, are definitely not the best bedfellows with, like, science and math, but it gives a lot of insight into his global universal perspective of just a lot of things. And he was a polymath. He was yeah. gifted in a lot of different disciplines. So to jettison that from university archives seems like a gross oversight. But they were sold off in 1936 to private collectors. So right. they're estimated to fetch about eighty dollars to $120,000 as part of its online-only Essential Genius 10 Important Manuscript Sale. <laughs> It runs until uh, the 10th of June. So I guess if you didn't already bid, you are out of luck because that's when we're recording this podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You missed the boat to get the uh, personal instructions on how to cure the plague. See, actually, I try to keep an open mind about stuff and I can see a particular set of circumstances where it might actually help in the sense that some plagues were bacterial. Right. Mm -hmm. And any living organism has gut flora in their stomach. And so in theory, you could have some sort of probiotic sludge that's coming out of this frog and possibly just, you know, fighting bacteria with bacteria. It could in maybe some instances be able to fight back some bacterial infection, possibly even the plague. I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. we need to bust the frogs out. uh, And it's certainly (laughs) it's not going to work with COVID because that's a virus. It's a totally different kind of organism. But I feel like there is possibly some... Some level of evidence that, yes, the uh, vomit of a toad could perhaps fight off some bouts of the plague. Absolutely.
1: Look, <laughs> if we live in a day and age where fecal transplants are a thing, yeah, absolutely. why not look at the toads? Yeah, you know?
0: yeah, I think so. I I feel like there's probably a better way to get them to vomit than to hang them upside down <laughs> until they're dead. I think possibly if, if modern science has given us anything, it's a way to make animals vomit without killing them, I think. Oh, <laughs> just, oh, I mean, just, you know, oh. put, a, put a slasher
1: movie in front of them. Like, do something <laughs> that just sort of grosses them out. Yeah, take them on a roller coaster. You know, you show them a good time at Six Flags or Disneyland when those things open again. And, you know, maybe maybe you tickle them until they just can't take anymore. Little like, itty-bitty frog coasters. Yeah. <laughs> <like, laughs> Oh, bless.
0: <laughs> if we're working on bees in space, we can work on uh, frogs on roller coasters. I think this is a very right. valid form of study.
1: <laughs> Why not? That's, That's right. the question. Why not? <laughs> exactly. Next link. Next, Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, I have one quick little one here at the end. This comes from the Brussels Times. A Belgian man named Jean van Landingham. He lives in Flanders, Ooh. Belgium. He's uh, 65 years old. He lives a pretty, you know, rural, normal life, except... He has been receiving large food delivery orders that he did not order for nine years. The what? yes, what? so <laughs> these orders come on a, a, a weekly, sometimes daily basis. It's mostly pizzas, but also kebabs, pitas, pretty much any local food place that delivers has been out to his yeah. house at some point. <laughs> he and and he's of course reporting this because he's really sick of it, right? These orders <laughs> just keep coming. He says it can Wait, be. Is he expected to pay for them, or are they prepaid. <laughs> no, he is uh, refusing them every time they come out, so he doesn't have to pay, which means the restaurant eats the cost. Basically, the Aww. the restaurants are are out, and you got to think like at some point they would put this guy's address on a do not go right. list. Like at some point they got to run out of restaurants. But he said actually some of them have been coming from outside the surrounding town. So whoever is sending these is sort of branching out because they figured out that they're not coming anymore. Uh, he <laughs> what says, did this
1: guy do to get all these prank pizzas delivered to him though? I
0: don't know. He says it's weekdays or weekends any time of day. He said he had orders delivered to him at two in the morning. He said, <laughs> he said, quote, I cannot sleep anymore. I start shaking every time I hear a scooter on the street. I dread that someone <sighs> (sighs) will come by to drop off hot pizzas yet another time Uh, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down either in just january of 2019 10 different delivery men showed up on the same day all of them having just massive orders one had 14 pizzas i mean these are just (gasps) giant giant orders of food and he says he has no idea where they come from but there is a clue which actually probably makes things more confusing than less he said, a friend of his who lives in a nearby town is going through exactly the same thing. She has been receiving pizza that she has not ordered for nine years as well.
1: Uh, okay, when he says friend, is this yeah. like a, a an ex-lover? Because I'm starting to feel like this is a very determined, spurned someone who is just like getting a kick out of torturing this guy. Yeah, with delicious food. I
0: don't know. I mean, he says, it. of course he says it's likely that it's someone they both know, which seems reasonable. Yeah. And, and he says he's reported the deliveries to the police several times, but they're just sort of not they're, they're not going to trace it out because they would have to trace a phone call as it's coming in. And he said, it's just not worth it. Just keep refusing uh. the order. <laughs> uh, so, oh, you know, police. I'm very cynical. My first thought was like, no, no, no. This guy's doing it to himself like that. He is <laughs> he's weird. And he's just sort of got this this obsessive, <laughs> likes to torture delivery drivers. He likes to go through this thing. It's his fetish. I don't know. And also, he's suckered in this woman. Or maybe it hasn't been happening to him. It's only been happening to this woman, and he's like trying to connect with her. I don't know. I don't have any idea hmm. what the uh, backstory hmm. is. It's pure conjecture. But I feel like... <laughs> (laughs) There clearly has to be something.
1: This isn't random. Somebody, like you said, they're mad at him and the woman or... And it's been going on long enough to possibly explain away something like maybe like a default address in some kind of online ordering system, like a bug that's defaulting to him and his lady friend, but... This is very suspicious. Yeah.
0: So I'm, I am i don't know what this guy's deal is, but certainly I have to say putting it out on uh, a national news organization like the Brussels <laughs> Times, probably not the best way to uh, to make it stop. Like, I feel like he's going to get no. a lot of trolls sending more now. But they didn't put his address in, so you'd have to find his name and uh, his little town in Belgium. But how many Jean Van Landinghams can there be in
1: his town? I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's That's just made crazy. his problem worse. So I don't know. Yeah, we'll... Or, he you know, he could potentially pivot it into a social service if he were able to like work with you know food banks or something like that i mean he may have to move you know if that's right. the case right he can just like turn his house into sort of like a hot takeout soup kitchen kind of situation if he could secure some kind of non-profit funding but... yeah if he
0: could get people to actually pay for it because that was one of the things he said he does the math occasionally when a lot when a really big order comes in he said some of them are upwards of 400 euros so of course Good you Lord. know he's like i'm not going to pay for that but yeah if someone yeah. wanted to i suppose they could uh,
1: set up a food bank there this feels like there should be an easy fix but good lord yeah yeah i don't know we we, got to keep
0: an eye on this guy as well See see what's up with him All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. There are, of course, many articles on Damaging.com that we did not get to. And they, too, have a theme this week. See if you can find it out. They are (laughs) what causes Saturn's strange polar cloud hexagon, who owns buried treasure, and why is China's army still using flamethrowers? I once heard that if there's ever a question in a headline, the answer is no, but none of those fit with no. So you have to come up with your own (laughs) answers. (laughs) If you'd like to support us and help our podcast keep going, you can go to patreon.com slash Interesting My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Eppley, And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.